There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10th and Grant's We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Folks, tonight we got a really interesting show and, and basically what it's about. Just yesterday, uh, Vanity Fair released an article and it was about the Moscow, Idaho neighborhood and what has happened to it in regards to these, these the quadruple murder of Ethan Chapin uh, Zaina Canodal, Maggie, uh, excuse me, um, Madison Mogan, and uh, Kaylee Gonsalves. And what has happened is since this occurred on November 13th, 2022, basically Moscow, Idaho has been overtaken by journalists. Not just journalists, but think of where journalism has gone, if, you, if we want to call it journalism. We now have content providers on, on the internet, on YouTube, just like we are, content creators, I should say. And some of the people that are, are reporting on this story, I don't know, is the word ethics and journalism, does it have anywhere to be said in the same sentence? I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's a, we want to just impart to you how this area of Idaho has been impacted. The media coverage of the Idaho quadruple the towns recovering and true crime gone wrong. Vanity Fair published an article yesterday, the Idaho murders as a small town grapples with, with uh, sinister rumors, true crime obsession grows. So the cr true crime obsession is that of course, people are just dying to hear the next bit of information on this case. However, we all know that there's a gag order right now. So based on the fact that there is no new information, what occurs? Well, information is invented or new angles to report on this case is pursued. Now, the article on Vanity Fair, it, it centered on a, a the corner club owner's name is Mark Trivelpiece. And he said he's starting to hate reporters. As a rule, he condemns violence. Anyone who throws punches in the corner club gets booted. But three weeks into the media storm surrounding the murders of four college kids in this town, Trivial Peace was beginning, beginning to think that people don't get punched in the face enough. So you can notice that the town is very frustrated. You got to remember this occurred right before the Thanksgiving break. And 25 to 40 percent of the students left and many of them never returned. They instead opting to study or to take the rest of the semester online. And as a result of this, the businesses suffered a great deal. You know, like it seems a small price to pay, of course, when four 20 and 21 year olds were slaughtered in their home right off the campus, the, the University of Idaho campus. But this is what we're going to report on. What is what is okay? What is ethical? What is ethical for content creators to report on on YouTube? And we take that pretty seriously. We've been heard to say that no one, no content creators on YouTube 
should be interviewing principals in this case. And I still feel that way. They have no business doing that. The principals in this case should only be interviewed by the police and the police detectives. Because if a content creator gets the first crack at an important witness, that taints the witness. All right. So I'm, I'm from the NYPD and we wouldn't let anyone near. I remember one time we had a, a murder of a 90 year old Holocaust survivor, a very important case. And the reporters started coming and trying to interview our principal witnesses. And I just basically said, get, get, get out of here. I threw them out. And they were like highly insulted that I did that. But they have no business interviewing the principals in this case. With me tonight to lend an ear while we actually have two. I have Phil Grimaldi, my co-host, but we also have a surprise guest tonight. She was a huge hit on Sunday night. And we have attorney uh, Melanie Little. I'm not going to bring her on right now, but just to know that she's in the waiting room and she will be in here. So right now, without any further ado, I'm going to introduce straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing good, Billy, and I'm chomping at the bit, and I'm anxious to comment on a lot of the stuff that you just said, and I'm so glad we have Melanie on tonight. Absolutely. Phil, go ahead. I, I want you to uh, get right into it. Oh, I'm going to get into it. You know, you talked about uh, how the journalistic value of being uh, involved in YouTube and content creators, uh, you know, there's a, a line that you can't cross. You brought up interviewing primaries in any type of a murder investigation or a missing person case, any serious case, uh, reporters, YouTube content creators, anyone should not be involved in principles of a case. But think about this. Think about the kids that went to that school that lived in that town at the time when this horrible quadruple homicide took place. These four victims, Zaina Canodal, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Ethan Chapin, were just about murdered in their beds in their sleep. What safer place can you be in life than in your bed when you're going to sleep at night and they were slaughtered? Now that puts fear into the community. And then you had the gaggle of reporters and YouTube content creators and all the different people that descended on Moscow, Idaho. And, you know, they, listen, everybody wanted to get a story. Everybody wanted to get it, uh, you know, their five minutes of fame, so to speak, or they wanted to dig deep into it. I get it. But there are certain lines and we have never crossed any of those lines. I'll give one, for instance, we talked about a person that was in the house that saw the assailant, saw the murderer. And we've only re, uh, referred to her and reported her as DM. We could have very easily used her name. Her name has been used numerous times in the media. That's one of the integrity things that we've decided we're not going to do. We're not going to say her name. I don't even know her name, even though I read it because I forgot it because I just referred to her as DNM, DM. That's one of the things, that's a line that should not be crossed. We know that several people were doxxed that were associated with the town just terrible. And I just feel for the people that, uh, you know, uh, they were, they were victimized once that, you know, a lot of the kids took off for home, you know, uh, Thanksgiving holiday, they left, maybe they didn't come back. And then they had to have this gaggle of, you know, nosy bodies, so to speak, even though they're journalists, they're doing their job, but there's certain ethical lines that you just can't cross. That's for sure, Phil. Miranda Fenley, I take it, Miranda, that you live in the Moscow area. Businesses have suffered, but we are used to students being gone in the summer. What has really been disturbing has been the behavior of reporters. Our courthouse shares a street with our high school. You know, for reporters, I think they would just barge into some of these businesses and talk about this homicide, this quadruple homicide, 
as if it was a sport or something, because the business owners and the locals were really getting pissed off at these these journalists. And 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 in addition, they had you know been very aggressive in interviewing people. They have followed people home. They basically some of the stories I'm not convinced were even true. The one about the uh, the, the mad Greek restaurant where one of the waitresses said, "Oh." Brian Coburg used to be a regular there. That has never, ever, ever been confirmed by anyone in law enforcement. That was a story by a, a reporter from People magazine, and it potentially may even be debunked at this point. So, you know, all of these things are things that the people that live in this neighborhood have to deal with. Also, how did it change the entire posture of the town as being one of the safest areas in the United States to being having this black cloud over it. You know, I want to interview, uh, I want to invite right now uh, Melanie Little, who besides being uh, an attorney, uh, she was a 20-year litigator in civil cases and a mom of four kids and an actress. She has a good head on her shoulders. And I want, Melanie, I'd like you to, welcome to the show, Melanie. Thanks, guys. Bill and Bill. Good evening. Melanie, we want to ask, like, put on your mom hat. All right? I have five kids, Bill. You can't leave one out. That's oh, okay, right. I'm that's sorry. Four, but it's five. Uh, that's, my, that's my bed. That's my bed. Um, put on your mom hat as the mother of, say, a college-age student. Mm-hmm. And imagine your son or your daughter was going to the University of Idaho when this was all going down. T- tell me about your feelings, what it would have been uh, if you had asked. It's so disturbing. I mean, I just can't even imagine anything more traumatic for college students. Look, our kids have been through so much with the lockdown and all of this other stuff. They already have enough trauma. Uh, I have two kids that are already done with college and three that still have to go to college. And I'll tell you what, I don't know that University of Idaho is going to be on the list of places to apply to because this is a really scary thing. You know, you send your kids to college, you, you, worry about them even when they leave and um it it is so disturbing and i I just feel so sad for the whole community i mean such a tight-knit community and it's mostly college students and you know they didn't need this they didn't need to be chased around by reporters and and followed home and doxxed it's just so disturbing on so many levels you know, this is the corner club where the uh, person who is one of the characters in this story written by Kathleen Hale for Vanity Fair, this is his club. And he, this is his words. When reporters barged in talking about the murders in such a casual way, Trivial Peace was like, whatever you guys want to talk about at home is fine. But their friends, the victims, are sitting right there. So let's not do this. He turned down location freeze from NBC, ignored calls from TMZ, Banished journalists from as far away as the London Telegraph, but kept them coming. Someone claiming to be from Fox News had recently followed a corner club employee's roommate to work. Like other Moscow business owners, Trivial Peace workforce and customer base are heavily composed of students who make up about half the town's population. After the murders, Fox estimated that 25 to 40 percent of those students fled home. There was a killer on the loose, but Trivial Peace wondered if the media harassment played a role in the mass exodus. How many students aren't going to come back because Fox News is sitting out in front of their house? Uh, You know, I just want to point out to the writer of this. uh, That was word for word from the Vanity Fair um, article. I just want to point out to Kathleen Hale. 
Fox News was not, she's making them the evil news organization. They were not the worst news organization in this case. There's, I won't name it, but there was another broadcasting station that was horrific. So, you know, she, she obviously has something against Fox News, but there were others that were as bad or worse than what she's talking about. I mean, look at the People magazine guy, you know, and the, look at the station that ran with that story as if it was gospel. Phil. Billy, you're talking about the people that descended on the town of Moscow, Idaho. How about the people that did it through the internet? I'm going to give one for instance. TikToker Ashley Gilliard. Ashley solves murders. She has obviously a, a TikTok uh, channel, a station. University of Idaho professor Rebecca Schoenfeld. This is what she claimed. Rebecca Schoenfeld was responsible for the murders, that she had a sexual relationship with one of the victims and hired a hitman to carry out the murders. There is currently a lawsuit pending against that young lady by uh, Professor Rebecca Schoenfeld because obviously she got all kinds of threats and all types of uh, harassment over through the computer, through Internet. Uh, just ridiculous stuff. Another one, a YouTuber, a psychic, Reverend, Reverend Donna Serafina, who started out the day with 46,400 subs when she made this post, that the murderer bakes his own bread and that his parents own the location where he uh, bakes the bread. She gained 10,000 subs on that day. Obviously, Jeff Smith, who's the owner of Moscow Bagels in Delhi, uh, was uh, set upon by uh, a campaign of harassment. And, you know, these are the types of things that, you know, you could actually uh, be found liable in a civil court or even possibly criminal charges could be lodged against you if you, you know, you, you accuse someone, there's defamation lawsuits and there's uh, criminal charges of aggravated harassment that could be leveled against you. So again, uh, we have very reckless people that are just trying to get into the uh, story, trying to get their five minutes of fame, and they're coming out with these crazy conspiracy theories, just making stuff up. Melanie, from a attorney's point of view, was the, is the gag order a good thing or a bad thing? I think the gag order is a good thing. Look, the gag think. orders are in place for a reason. Uh, attorneys are, uh, when you swear in to be an attorney, you are responsible for upholding professional ethics. We have a code of professional responsibility, which is ethics. And the gag order is in place and it specifically is precluding the attorneys in the case from speaking to the media about the case. There's no reason that these things need to be out there. Anything that can affect a fair trial is gagged. And I think it's a good thing. You know, uh, Melanie, uh, despite the gag order, there's been numerous leaks from sources close to the investigation mm -hmm. and some stations have been going with that and it's it's disheartening to say the least that these sources i hope they get these sources close to the investigation have a pair of smith and wesson handcuffs slapped on them and their sources close to the investigation will now be reporting from sing sing although that's mm. a little far away from idaho <laughs> you know we there have, are a, we have our a, sources right Absolutely. We have a bit of a celebrity guest just jumped in and uh, I'm so happy to have him here because he owes me this one because I've been on his show numerous times. Welcome duty Ron to the show, Ron. Welcome. Hey, hey, Bill. Hey, thank you for having me, Phil. Great to see you. Hello, Melanie. It's a pleasure to meet you. Same here, Ronnie. Speaking of integrity, it is a man with integrity. That's for sure. You know, I, Ron and I speak probably every morning at about the same time, about 8 45 in the morning. 
And if I miss the call, he will call me back. Same thing. But anyway, Duty Ron has, a, of course, we all know Crime Time with Duty Ron. He has a great show. But he was very upset at some of the information that was put out there by some, and we don't have to name the journalists, by some journalists, some broadcast stations. And it is disturbing. And in addition, some YouTube content creators really push the bar of ethics, or I don't even think they know the word what ethical conduct is. Ron, you want to comment on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Bill. You know, I, I've been loud and clear about this situation. You know, once the gag order was put in place, we all predicted what was going to happen. You know, uh, the news has a job to do, and we get that. It, it, listen, they have a job to do. They need to report on stories. But once that gag order was put in place, I knew that the main people, the main interviews were going to go away. So they needed to look in other areas. And when they talk about these sources close to the investigation, Ed Wallace and I have been loud and clear about it. And, you know, I'm not afraid to mention the names, Nancy Grace, Banfield, and some of these people who just are rushing to get these stories out there. I get that they got a job to do, but it comes at a price. And the price is misleading their audience. And, Bill, you, you hit it right on the head when you said we also report on these cases. But we emphasize that in the light and in, in the best name of justice, there's some things that you just don't want to put out there. You don't want to try to poke your nose into areas where you can potentially hurt the case. And that's what this is all about. We spent our whole careers fighting for justice. And in our retired life, we're not going to go against that. So that's my thoughts on it. Ron, that was... Uh... It was almost a tear was coming down my face. It was no, no, I'm just kidding. That was great. That was really great. And I feel the same way, to tell you the truth. And when, especially when YouTube content creators really cross the line and, you know, forgive them, Lord, because they know not what they do. I remember learning that from the Bible when I was a kid, because they really don't know what the hell they're doing, you know, and they just have no, they just trounce on justice. Melanie, your thoughts? Uh, you know, I agree with you, Ron. And I was going to say that, you know, there was another guy who was docked. He was a neighbor. He was doxxed. He was a neighbor of uh, of the students that were uh, murdered. I don't even want to mention his name because the guy's name shouldn't even be out there anymore. He was a third year law student. His name was out there as a potential suspect. They they doxxed him. And now he feels like he has to carry a pistol around because he's afraid for his life. He's getting threats on his life. It's just not right. I mean, there's there's got to be some kind of line that, that people just got to stop crossing. Putting these you know people in the crosshairs is, is not right. You, you know a big thing, too, that I don't like when the media tries to dictate the narrative. And specifically what I'm referring to is after six weeks, why is there no arrest? Is this now a cold case? Should the FBI take over this case? All of that stuff was just absolute, and pardon my French, horseshit. And who are they to say that? They're not qualified to make that statement. I had so many, I had police chiefs, detectives, lieutenants, captains come to me and go, do you believe they said that? I go, it's irresponsible that they say that or get to say that. Phil. Yeah, I just want to piggyback what Ron said and what uh, uh, 
Melanie said, number one, Ron, I think you're 100% right. Uh, just because you're a reporter and there's a gag order, if someone wants to speak to you and you want to put out information, I get it. Uh, unless it's really sensitive information that might throw turmoil into an investigation or a trial, then it's unethical, 100%. So I think that the focus with the gag order has got to be on who's opening their mouth to the reporters, obviously. Journalists, they have sources. They don't have to reveal who their sources are. And obviously that's okay. It's uh, within the guidelines of what we do with journalism and stuff. But again, uh, you have to really, you know, you have to watch that fine line. Certain things, I mean, listen, I'm going to talk about Ashley Banfield real quick. She put the mother of one of the victims on that obviously had a drug addiction. It was a bad look. She apologized about it. I think that was a mistake on her part. And I think she believes that too. She kind of apologized to, uh, about it. Uh, with the regard to the neighbor, now that poor neighbor, I'm not going to mention his name either that Melanie was just talking about. All he did was give an interview on the news and talked about, you know, maybe Maybe it was a loud party, blah, blah, blah. He gave a simple news interview. Next thing you know, he's getting death threats. He's the murderer. He's the murderer. The guy had to actually, uh, you know, hide just about and, and move away for a few days. And, you know, he was carrying a pistol after that. Just totally, totally uh, crazy. It's just kind of crazy that, you know, a guy who just happens to be a neighbor where a, a horrible situation takes place, he gives an interview to the news and all of a sudden he's the, uh, the main suspect. So again, we got to really pull back on stuff like this. I want to play a little bit of this. This is Chief Fry. And in the beginning of this investigation, it was almost the media was almost demanding that he tell them the investigative details that he had. They were almost demanding. And he was fantastic. Let me play this. An isolated attack without saying why. The reason why you believe it's it was targeted or the reasons are so crucial to the investigation that they cannot be revealed. And we are not going to reveal that. That's part of that investigation, trying to pull the pieces in that will help give us the before, the during, and the after. In his first sit-down interview, police chief James Fry emotional about the toll this has taken on the community. Do you believe that you were prepared to handle something like this? So we're trained um, very well. We're also aware when we need to bring in I apologize, guys. It's a little freezing up. Uh, one of the one of the things that um, the chief the chief here is saying. Let me remove it. The chief is talking about. Uh, hang on, folks. Can I? So you can get real internet go, service. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, Chief Fry had to create a whole spot on his website to put down these rumors. And he's showing in this piece here how the emotions and how his emotions are running high due to the fact of all of the extra stress and pressure that was not only created by the media, but created by folks on TikTok, folks on all social media platforms. You know, they were being poo-pooed from the beginning, just as you said, Bill, and I, I, I can't overemphasize how this happens in almost every one of the cases we cover. You know, you look at um, uh, what happened in uh, Quentin Simon. They, they mother. Hold on a second. I'm going to bleep myself. They mother that police chief over down over in, in 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 that jurisdiction. But what did what happened? He wound up making an arrest and arresting uh, this kid's mother for the murder of this little boy. 
but it was the same situation. They were just going after the police. And in this piece, he gets emotional about that because he's, he's getting pressure from all around. Well, the, one of the things that I, that I sort of look, we are not without sin either. We said early on in this investigation that we don't know if the Moscow police had the necessary skills to investigate a case of this magnitude, this size, this complexity. However, they admitted that. So what did they do? They brought in the Idaho State Police and they brought the FBI in. And now, yeah, now we're going to do it. And now we're confident. Now we're doing, they're pointing us in the right direction. We're going to get this thing solved. However, the media was unrelenting, beating them down like, oh, they're not capable. Shouldn't the FBI take this case from them? No, they should not take this case from them. And that's unprecedented for them to do that. Melanie. You know, Billy, uh, before, oh, go ahead, Melanie, I'm sorry, go. No, why don't you finish your thought? I'll, I'll remember mine. Uh, you know, Bill, be before the social media age, before cell phones, when we would have a high-profile case, let's say in the 90s into the early 2000s, uh, you know, reporters be poking around, they'd be around for a few days, and then it kind of just like fade off into the sunset until something major would happen. But because the news cycle moves so quickly in this day and age, that's why they're hounding. They're, you know, they do a lot of investigative work from a computer about a victim because victims' names are usually public record right away after a homicide. And so they're, they're digging in and they're finding out about the person. And then, you know, through social media, they can look up their Facebook page or their TikTok account or their uh, Snapchat, Instagram, all these different things. And now they start going off on their own uh, investigative theories on what happened. So I think that that's really what happened. And the fact that they were looking at this case as a cold case a couple of weeks in was completely and totally ridiculous. We reported that a case is not cold until it's not being worked on every day. That case was being worked on around the clock. So that was just a ridiculous statement at the time. Melanie, do you remember your thought? I do. Uh, what I was going to say is just because the public doesn't know every single detail of the investigation doesn't mean the investigation is not progressing. Okay. And I think that's a big trap that a lot of people have fallen into. And, and are they required to release every detail of their investigation and everything they know? You know, I would submit to you, no, they don't have to. Um, the fact that they caught this guy within seven weeks of these killings is, is great work. I mean, you guys know better than me, but I went to college in Boulder and we're still looking for who killed John Benet Ramsey. So, you know, seven weeks from murder to arrest seems to be like these guys did a great job. It's, it's pretty damn good, you know, and everything sort of was out front. I mean, there was a lot of transparency, even though to the police department's credit, coached, I believe, by the FBI is that no, don't release that. No, don't release this. Don't. And they haven't. And to their credit, that's why their case is going to be so strong when they do go forward. Uh, duty, Ron. Yeah, you know, Bill, um, when you talk about what the police chief did here in Moscow, Idaho, you know, they hadn't had a, a murder in uh, quite, a, quite a long time, seven years. It was seven years, yeah. yes. Yeah, so seven years. He had the wherewithal to immediately notify the Idaho State Police Crime Lab. Their crime scene unit, as per uh, Ed Wallace, is second to none. They, they have a, a phenomenal crime lab. And... You know, we come to find out that the Faro 3D laser scanning was done of the crime scene immediately uh, by the Idaho State Crime Lab. We also uh, spoke with uh, Jared from the MVAC Corporation. He offered his services directly to the police chief. 
to use that DNA vacuum uh, uh, at the crime scene and and in in any capacity that they needed it. Uh, but they never got back to him in regards to that. But this is this is my point: is that these guys, even though they weren't uh, you know war tested, they really rose to the occasion and they reached out to all the different resources. And I tip my cap to them for doing that because. Uh, in light of all of that, with keeping stuff close to their vest and all the criticism, they stayed tight-lipped. There wasn't much information, which led to a lot of people getting, uh, you know, uncomfortable and, and leading to questioning them. And if you could recall, uh, the, the, the state police, I think his name is Snell, Aaron Snell, he was a spokesperson for uh, this case for a little while. And like you said, Bill, I think the FBI and, and, and somebody who's a little bit more versed in getting information out, they kind of put the kibosh on him even speaking to the public. And then it just went radio silent. So I, I think that it, they did a great job uh, with without being battle tested. And they rose to the occasion. That's for sure. I think you're 100 percent right. And we when we look at the case going back to November 13th, it was almost like the media had a mission to somewhat discredit the Moscow Police Department. And in the very beginning, granted, they made a bunch of mistakes, specifically with their messaging. Initially, the mayor actually made a few comments, which was ridiculous, like, a, like shut the mayor up now. The mayor should not be talking. Gag him, put a thing around his mouth. You know, he should not be talking. And then they had a couple of other people that a spokesperson, and then he said, you know something, there's got to be one messenger. And I believe then the messenger became Chief Fry. And from that point on, I think the message got out there and the message got out there correctly after that. Yes. Phil? Phil, you're frozen somewhere. Uh, you know, Melody, Bill, am I? You were frozen for a second. So go ahead. This is uncomfortable. Go ahead, Melanie. <laughs> Ron, go ahead. Chief Fry. <laughs> what do you got? Yeah, yeah. so I, I, I'm Chief Fry as as the spokesperson. I think it was great because, again, uh, I'll, I'll piggyback on on what you were saying, Bill. He uh, he was coached and, you know, he was letting out uh, the, the most basic of information. But when the mayor, I use the analogy to Jaws, when the mayor of Moscow said, it's safe. There's no danger to the community. I use the analogy of the mayor telling the police commissioner, the police chief uh, in, of Amity, right? Uh, it's 4th of July. We'll send them into the water. Let's go. It's safe here. Uh, it, it had to do with the University of Idaho. That is a major part of income and uh, the, the heartbeat of Moscow is the University of Idaho. So right away, the mayor was like, oh, there, there's no danger. And he quickly got, uh, he, he, he got the, the sock in his mouth. Melanie, over to you. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. I think, it, you know, follow the money, Yeah. right? It's a shame, but. Yeah, and, and, and the kid, there's a killer on the loose. You're telling these kids that they're safe uh, and uh, poor messaging. Well, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with also is that, you know, if you put it in dollars and cents, which it, when four young people get murdered, you want you don't want to talk about the dollars and cents of this. But 25 to 40 percent of the students returned home after these murders and most of them didn't come back. So 
think of what the college uh, is losing or the community is losing in business because all the business for the um, for the, you know for the local businesses is coming from the students. So the student population is gone and they're not making money. And now the press is pushing this narrative. And of course, then the businesses aren't happy to lose the money and the businesses in turn are not happy to see the press there. Phil, you're back. Phil. Do you have me? I think I was losing my connection. Yeah, yeah my yeah, connection. Yeah, now I got good. you. Oh, I thought you, you had something me? to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't hear what you guys were saying, but obviously, uh, you know, the, the financial aspect of what's going on in the town is one of the components of, you know, uh, the, the after effects of this uh, quadruple homicide. And, you know, think about it. There was a quiet little town. People were going about their business, running their businesses, uh, going about their everyday life, and everything just got turned upside down uh, the day of that murder and every day following. You know, I want to talk a little bit about also all of the, what we call maybe affectionately, affectionately or not so affectionately are the talking heads on the, these cases. And these are specifically the alleged experts that go on broadcast television and speak about what they believe certain things mean in this case. Many of them, uh, uh, the uh, FBI agent Cologne, fantastic. Uh, is it Michael Cologne or... The FBI agent, uh, we had him on our show. He was fantastic. But some of the others, I don't think really knew what they were talking about. Not all of them, a few of them. And so they're putting that out there for the whole nation. And then it's going out, of course, to the community. And I don't know if you can trust all of the information that they're putting out there. Ron, what do you think? Yeah, you know, Bill, I, I think uh, I like to always say we you try to stay in your lane. Uh, I, I would never go on a show if... They asked me to talk about uh, autopsies or talk about, uh, you know, what what the perspective should or could be from a, a criminal defense attorney. I, I yield to the people in the profession. Uh, and I think that, um, unfortunately, some of these uh, talking heads, as you say, Bill, um, they they may go in and, and, and talk on on areas that they really don't have any expertise in. Uh, and, and that's where the, the problem comes into play is that. We could actually see through that. Um, most people who are watching it don't see through that because they're just uh, they're just going ooh and ah, and um, they're they're kind of just going along with whoever's interviewing them, whoever's brought them onto their show. Uh, and we did see that with uh, one of the talking heads. Uh, he actually, uh, again, I, I hate to keep bringing going back to Ashley Banfield, but she had this uh, this guy on. I'm not going to mention his name, and he kind of just. Um, went head to head with her and pretty quick it was commercial break and he was cut off. So uh, an uncomfortable moment. He actually went on to YouTube and was very vocal about it. Uh, and it wasn't a good look, but it is what it is. Absolutely. Guys, do you remember this video here? It's very quick. Let me just play it. That was what did he tell you? What did Adam tell you? Right? Adam. What did you say to Adam? I, I told Adam everything. Adam, what did you say to Adam? Adam, what did you say to Adam? I told Adam everything. Now, because of that video, that bartender Adam, that is from the uh, the corner club 
he was doxxed and his life became miserable just because of that video that was shared mm. on national television. And the way it was presented was like, why aren't we locking up Adam? Why is Adam not in cuffs right now? You know, this is the ridiculousness of, of media and media pointing their fingers in the wrong direction. Melanie. There were a lot of Jacks. There was an Adam. There was, you know, people are with a 24 hour news cycle. They're looking for anything nowadays to fill time. And, you know, there's a lot of people sitting at home. There's a lot of armchair detectives and they grasp at straws and sometimes try and make something out of nothing. And um, it's unfortunate for these people that are the subject of these investigations or these armchair investigations, I'd say. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. If you want to subscribe to our channel, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel memberships with, count them, five different levels. And you see our folks in the green font in the chat. They're part of our YouTube family. and. We really, really appreciate them and uh, how they support this channel. You know, one of my biggest things, of course, we've spoken about, this case goes back to court on June 26th for the, um, the probable cause hearings are going to begin. It was sort of amazing that the judge gave almost six months for them to prepare for the probable cause hearings. But the probable cause hearings, when they start on June 26th, they they have allotted five days. I don't know if they'll need five days to do the probable cause hearings, but they've allotted five days. There is no doubt in my mind that at the end of the, those five days, they're going to put this case off till September because no one works during the summer. Melanie, you know that, right? <laughs> well, you know, I like to you would always tell my clients the wheels of justice turn very slowly. Um, and that's just in civil court. But uh, yeah, I'm surprised that his attorneys would let it go for so long. I would think they would want to get this done quick. I mean, he's entitled to a speedy trial. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it seems like it's going to take a long time. Absolutely. Phil, comments? Well, I think the advantage is going to be for the defense to go through all the discovery material. Uh, again, like you said, Bill, chances are it may get postponed till September. Who knows what uh, investigators they'll have working on it. And I think that the uh, prosecution is probably doing a lot of uh, still continuing investigation and legwork on this case. There's just so many components of uh, the different locations of the crime scenes, uh, you know, all the technical uh, cell phone information, the cameras, the traffic cameras, all the different things. So, again, they're going to want to get an expert in each and every one of those categories that's going to be able to testify to the data that they're going to put forward. So they have their work cut out for them. Defense, uh, same thing. And all the discovery will go over to the defense team. They're going to have to go through that. So I think, uh, I don't think we're going to see a real actual trial, probably for a good 18 months, I'd say. Well, could possibly be. Ron, one of the things that um, we we really got an education watching the Murdoch trial and how good the electronics came in. Well, I, I say electronics, my kids chastise me. Dad, it's not electronics. And what I'm talking about is the what cell is phones, <laughs> the cell phones, the videos, you know, the, uh, the, the son 
Paul Murdoch put his video or sent it to his friend. And that allows for a super, super accurate timestamp. And those timestamps we've seen also in, in the Idaho quadruple case, of course, of uh, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, and uh, I'm missing someone. Zana Kernodal. Zana We're seeing those things being used in this case too, to great, great accuracy. Yet there are some people in the media that there was a big article, an op-ed in the New York Times, I think you guys all read it, where he questioned, how is this possible? I'm not sure that this is really good evidence. Ron, your thoughts? You know, Bill, uh, electronic evidence, cell phone data, uh, everything that these young kids were doing online, that footprint doesn't go away. And our, uh, you know, folks in the crime lab, the FBI, uh, they're, you know, they're getting all of this data. And this is going to be a tremendous, tremendous boost on this case. Uh, and, and as Phil and, and, and our great guest, Melanie, uh, has stated, you know, we we've only seen a tenth, maybe a tenth of what they have in these probable cause affidavits and uh, these search warrant returns and so forth. Uh, there's a treasure trove of electronic evidence, not just from their cellular devices and all the media. Uh, there's a treasure trove of evidence that it can even come from Brian Kohlberger's vehicle. And I did some pinpointed shows on the vehicle that also too will, uh, you know, we, we hear about them. They're taking out the brake, brake pedal, the gas pedal, the seats, they rip that car apart. So there's so much that we don't know about and that we haven't heard, heard about and that's going to be coming. It's going to be coming. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And uh, like last night we had two guests from Ramapo college uh, from the, uh, investigative genetic genealogy certificate program there. And the things that they're doing now uh, with investigative genetic genealogy are just unbelievable, unbelievable. And it came into play in this case in regards to touch DNA. And, and that was an amazing thing too, because it's like, I don't think we fully understand DNA. And I think that what, what I'm afraid of is that with genetic uh, genealogy, they really need to proceed slowly and they need the legal end of it to match the scientific end. Because if they don't have the law in place correctly, the evidence is not going to be uh, valued by the defense attorney uh, crowd in the whole country. Melanie, your thoughts? Not a defense attorney and I'm not a DNA expert. So... I don't know where to but go. You with are this. an attorney. You are an attorney. Were so smart. I mean, I was watching them. My head was spinning. I, I it was, it was incredible. You know, I could say something. I, so I want to make a comment about the. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, but Ronnie. I'm sorry. It's fine. There's, there's a there's like a little delay, so it it happens. It's it's no big deal. Uh, I just wanted to say something short and sweet here. Uh, on your show last night, Bill, I watched the replay of it. I didn't catch it live. But I noticed that they did mention, you know, C.C. Moore, you, you brought it up. It was kind of like a, a, a moment of oof. But they, they took right to C.C. Moore real well. But they also mentioned the guest that I had on, uh, Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. Yes. Uh, she is a whiz at the forensic genealogy, genetic genealogy, and this whole thing. Uh, and she's been at this, uh, this game a really long time. And they mentioned the Doe Project that she was on. And... When I had her on my show, she stayed for an hour and 45 minutes. 
I normally, as you know, we try to keep these things at an hour, uh, but it was so fascinating. The, 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 you know, the, the technical data, the, the, the research, the science and how far it's come. It's just amazing. And it's all coming into play in this case, in the Idaho uh, murder, uh, quadruple murder case. So uh, I, I, I feel that it's, it's definitely a great component to this uh, investigation and it's going to help with the prosecution going forward. Unbelievable. Wild Z Pony, thank you for the 1999 yes. Super Chat. Oh, my Lord, it's the big dog panel. <laughs> the Supreme <laughs> Commander, Detective Phil Duty Run, and an awesome attorney, Melanie Little. Look at that. People already thank like you. Melanie. This is only her <laughs> second appearance. My God. Can I, just, can I just say hello to everybody that I invited to come on over here? So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming over from Crime Time with Duty Run. I did share this uh, before we went, before you went live, Bill. So thank you to all the live chatters that are coming over from my community. We, as Bill and Phil says all the time, Melanie, you're going to get these little isms that we use here. We cross pollinate all of our uh, community people. So lots of the folks who watch my channel, watch Bill and, and vice versa. So, yeah, no, it's, it's really actually fantastic. And, uh, I've always thanked duty, Ron. He's helped my channel probably more than anyone else other than me. <laughs> and uh you you well no you you helped me tremendously but you know i i'm still you know i wish last night's show had gotten more had a bigger audience because it really is so important and the people the real crime audience has to also put on their student cap because it can get a little bit boring a little confusing it's almost like you need to be in a classroom and when they talk about snips that new uh, technique they use to collect DNA and then building the tree and people giving their DNA because we could solve crimes. Wait a minute. My, you know, a lot of people would say, my family's not involved in crime, but that doesn't matter. A third or fourth cousin, you know, 50 years ago could have been. So they're advocating for people to give their DNA so that they'll have this because, you know, it's it's sort of a fallacy that they use 23andMe and Ancestry.com. They're not allowed to use that. That's no. not approved for law enforcement. So they use something called JEDmatch, and there's one other one that I'm not recalling. Melanie, you look like you wanted to jump yeah, to the screen. Yeah, I was going to encourage people to watch the replay of that of last night's podcast because it was fascinating. I mean, these guys know their stuff, and it is really a fascinating science. But that's what I was going to ask you because I did not see that part with regard to this case and the DNA match that the familial ma familial match that they made. Right? Did it come? It didn't come through 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and that stuff is not accessible to law enforcement. What if they have a subpoena? What if are they able to get it then? Because a lot well, of people are hesitant. I'm telling you, my kids gave me a 23andMe kit a couple of years ago. It's still sitting in my cabinet because you know I, I don't know what they're going to do with my DNA. Not that I'm going to commit a crime, but I think a lot of people are hesitant to send that stuff in thinking, you know, like it's a collection service. Right. I think, you know, something I'm, something, I'm you know, always very, might say. Melanie, I'm always very leery about anything that the government wants to do with any kind of evidence right. because you don't know what they're going to do with it, you know. But, you know, we, we spoke about the what's called in the uh, special victims world, they used to call it sex crimes unit as the cold DNA hits. And cold DNA hits are hits on guys who were in prison. Mm. And all of a sudden, years later, their DNA comes back on a rape that happened five years ago. And then they go into the prison and they have to slam the door shut. Because of course, if you open the door too much, 
guy's going to say, oh, yeah, that was consensual, you know. But it's hard to have consensual sex with someone you never met when you close the door, a place you've never been, an apartment you've never been. How did their DNA get on a person who you've never met? So that's the skill of investigators to slam that door investigatively and utilize the DNA so that it can put some a real bad guy in prison. You know, well, none of you guys Bill, have any. One comments. of the points they made, and I thought it was right on. Track. You got me, Bill. You're cutting in and out. Am I freezing? Bill. You're cutting yeah, in and out. Yeah, he's freezing. Yeah, you know, you made you made some good points there, Bill. Uh, I, I I gotta say that you know. Uh, this technology and the way it's advanced, again, I'm going back and I'm circling back to this. Um, you know, it, it's beyond my pay grade. And and like Melanie said, go back and watch the replay from last night because it's fascinating information. Uh, and you could look up all this uh, genealogy stuff and uh, it's helping solve a lot of crimes, but it's also, you brought up a great point, Bill, last night. It's also helping to exonerate people who are not guilty, uh, who have been uh, uh, you know, convicted and, and, and sentenced. Um, forensic genealogy and these genealogists that are, uh, you know, these investigative genealogists, they're helping to, uh, to release people who are uh, wrongfully accused, wrongfully, uh, you know, sentenced to lots of time. So it's important. Uh, but I wanted to ask you one thing too, Bill. Did you guys cover the, the, the part about the story of the mad Greek restaurant because i don't think i came in late to this thing um where they were are you referring to um that that the the people magazine guy who claimed i just glanced over that if you want to cover that i'd be happy to listen to it good the the reason i circle onto this is because this was a story that was um that was published in people magazine and it was the same guy who uh brought Ashley Banfield, some other information on some stories, some breaking stories, but I'm not going to get into the other uh, bit of information that he shared with her, but I want to talk about this because I went a little step further, which I normally don't do, but I did this on, uh, you know, on a, on a phone call. I I got an email from a resident in Moscow, Idaho, uh, and I I get a lot of this stuff on dutyround.com. People send me messages. Hey, I want to talk to you. I want to tell you some inside information. But this one is somebody who I made friends with, and and she came on my channel with me, and we discussed this. Um, you know, the owner of the Mad Greek Restaurant, and 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 it's a family-run business, just like many of the businesses in this small community in Moscow, Idaho. They're all small mom-and-pop stores. Uh, this woman that I spoke with goes there and eats there and knows the owners, and she knows and spoke with the owners and. The bottom line is, is that everything that was reported in that, and it was a tweet that was put out by the owner saying that that People Magazine article was absolute bullshit. And and I believe myself because I know you're running a family show here, Bill. But (laughs) this, this gets me so angry because it's, again, going back to the race to get the breaking story. This here, you only heard this here. And it was bullcrap. And it was not anything remotely close to the truth but what did that do it created a bunch of online hatred and oh they're just trying to cover up because they want their business to thrive and that had nothing to do with it these business owners and these people are devastated by these four college students that were slain brutally knifed to death in their in their home right and 
then to add insult to injury, they're reading these crappy stories that are created just to pay their advertisers and to pay the bills. It's like, listen, I, I honor good reporting. I honor good, uh, real verified stories. I love them. But when you're putting out garbage like that, and now you have an owner sending a tweet saying the People Magazine article was absolute hogwash, and then you double down and re-report it again. It's just, it's just a my, it just blows my mind. It's a, it's oh, a, a, oh hell no, even, it's an oh hell no moment, and I'm gonna play it. Oh hell no! That's it. <laughs> you, you, you have all these extra accoutrements that I don't have, I don't but know the uh, half of it, I, I like it. JJ, thank you so much for the 499 super sticker. Very much appreciated. You know, one of the things, that, Ron, we we were talking a little bit about even ethical behavior in the uh, YouTube content creator uh, mm -hmm. community, and there isn't a lot. And we try, uh, as as pol former police officers, detectives, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, whatever, we try to understand what it means to talk to someone who has lost a family member. And if you're talking about a homicide in a restaurant where the community is devastated by this and you're talking as if it's a baseball game, it's very much not appreciated. And it's also so unprofessional as to like, dude, is there any journalistic ethics that disallows you from talking about the slaughter of four kids inside a restaurant in the very community that they that they lived and went to school in, Melanie. Your thoughts? It's a, it just shows a callous disregard for the community, for the students, for yep. the friends and family members who are sitting around them in these bars and restaurants while they're talking about this story. Like it's just another Tuesday for them, and you know, it's disappointing and kind of gross. Yeah. yeah, I use Absolutely. that word a lot. Mel Melanie, I, I appreciate that you just used that word. I I've actually typed it out in many responses on my community post mm -hmm. and, and, and on my social media. You know, I have people messaging me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and that's one of my real uh, my, my real responses to that type of behavior. It's gross because, listen, listen even if you're not a, a mother or a father, you know, you have you know, nephews, nieces, you know, we, we all know about humanity. And, and Bill, you said it real well. Um, there's the most difficult part of our job is as police officers is to go to somebody and tell them that their loved one was either killed, killed themselves, or was in a bad accident and, and, and is, is no longer with us. That The death notification is the, is the, the most stressful and uncomfortable thing conversation to have with somebody. And when you have news reporters and other people, content creators or whatever, poking around um it's so disrespectful it's on such such a bad it's 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 bad on many many levels is what i'm trying to say but you got a super chat to read there i, I would be glad to uh, talk about that midwest girl 69 thank you for the five dollar super chat with all the experience on the panel how do you feel how do you all feel about there being another person with brian being involved with this crime i feel that he did this alone i totally uh think that would be true. I think if there was another person with him, there would be forensic evidence of that fact. There would be video of that fact. There would be, you know, people, witnesses seeing someone else. I think it's a lone crime. Your, your thoughts, Ron? 
Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree uh, with you on that, but I, I would say this. Um, for those of you who are feeling that this, this is, uh, a, a, this is a, an act that couldn't have been done alone, uh, that is your perspective. But the bottom line is, is as, as Bill said, if there was somebody else involved, the evidence would show it, uh, and uh, we would have, you know, uh, a, another defendant in custody at this time. So uh, I don't, I don't feel that that's a, a viable, e even a possibility in this case because, uh, again, there's so much left at that crime scene that we don't know about, and there are so many different pieces of the puzzle here that they've already put together behind the scenes, and we'll hear about that once this trial commences. You know, one hundred percent. I think that. Um... That's another thing, like a, a, an accomplice. That's another thing being thrown out there by media people or by people that are trying to make this case something bigger than, you know, well, it's already huge. You don't have to throw more things into the mix when there's absolutely zero evidence of that. Mm -hmm. And to try to, uh, you know, just, just sensationalize this, I think is the right word. Melanie, your thoughts? Uh, I think a lot of people think this because one of the first things he said after his arrest was, did you arrest anybody else yet? Right. Wasn't that one part of his statement? Yeah, he absolutely just said to that. throw but... off the, you know, yeah. you know, just to create some sort of buzz. You know, I, I've also heard some rumblings that there may have been another person in the car with him that was caught on, you know, some video. But again, these are all just rumors that are being spread out there. Uh, I don't have any opinion really either way, uh, but I, maybe there's a lot out there that we still don't know that will come out right. during his well, trial, absolutely. during discovery. Hey, Bill, yeah. I wanted to say something in addition to what Melanie just said. You know, when, when Kohlberger was taken into custody, remember it was four o'clock in the morning in his, in his kitchen, right? He's in his kitchen in a, in a pair of shorts with, um, with surgical, surgical gloves, gloves right? Yeah. Surgical gloves on his hand, and he was putting stuff into individual bags, right? Ziploc bags. And he was arrested in the middle of the night. So right away, it, what he was probably thinking, and I'm trying to like give the audience a little bit of his mindset, is that that statement of did you arrest anybody else? He just drove across country with his father. So if anything, if, if I was to think of anything, that is more so where his mindset would be at that point. Did you lock my dad up? Uh, sort of kind of, you know, alluding to that. And also, it also opens the door up to, did the father know? Did his father know what his son did? Um, we don't know that. And I'm not saying that that's the case here. But all I'm saying is, is his mind was probably racing. Oh, oh, shit. I told my father maybe this, this and this. Uh, did you guys lock? Did, did he get collar too? So um, that could have been his mindset. And I know Phil's chomping at the bit, so I'm going to yield to <laughs> Phil Grimaldi. First thing I got to do is apologize for my internet connection. I don't know what's going on tonight, but you know the, the oh. conspiracy theory about uh, there being more than one uh, killer involved in this case. I think because four people were slaughtered, and it seemed possible or likely that there was more than one killer. So I think that's where it came from. And then again, what Melanie said that there could have been someone in the car and all the different things that, uh, that Ron pointed out, but I am with you, Ron, I'm with you, Bill, that I do not believe there was anyone else involved in this case. I think based on what we do know about the case and we do know the extensive, extensive investigation that has been done, there would have been somebody else in custody if there was 
there is still a possibility, perhaps maybe he gave evidence to someone to ditch or dispose of. I think we would know about that at this point too. However, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I really believe that he acted alone in the uh, actual homicides though. You know, one of the things, Ron, it was interesting that you just uh, spoke about how he was arrested at four o'clock in the morning and he was caught with surgical gloves on, which I wear every night to bed, you know, just to me too, <laughs> you know, and, and, his mother and father were woken up. But one of the, if I was in that that warrant team, the first thing I would have wanted to do after he was secured and the evidence was secured and he was cuffed was to get the father in a room by himself and interrogate the father. And if he didn't lawyer up, he would be in the box for a while, you know, because the father knows things that oh, yeah. may seem innocuous, but he would have, you know, he may have said right away, I want an attorney. But I would like to know he may not have. And I'm sure those are the things in this investigation that we know nothing about. What good instincts, Bill, good instincts. Oh, yeah. What did they say? But what, what statements did but, they make? But can I add something to this whole thing? Uh, sure. is, is, was there anybody in the United States that was paying just a smidge of attention to true crime or to, to your TV uh, was there anybody in the United States that didn't know about a 2011 to 2013 white Hyundai Elantra? Let me ask the audience this. What car did Brian Kohlberger drive across country with his father across country? And, 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 and as a parent, Phil, Bill, and Melanie, your kid is, in, is going to Washington State University, which is eight miles from Moscow in the University of Idaho. Are you not looking at Four college kids murdered eight miles away from where my son is going and for a PhD program. You can't tell me that these people didn't know about a white Hyundai Elantra. And the father drove, took a plane, and drove back in a white Hyundai Elantra. So I call bull <laughs> on that. I think you're I think you're right, Ron. Uh you know what on uh, last night, um Karen Binder and Dr. David Gurney. They said to us, and it was interesting because this is really from a non-investigator in the traditional sense, although I would consider Karen Binder an investigator, but within the DNA realm. She said, you know, this case probably could have been solved with traditional investigative methods without the DNA. And she's right. The biggest piece of evidence in this case that drove the case was what you just said, Ron, the Hyundai, the white Hyundai Elantra. The fact that it was caught on video coming in, right, parking right behind the house, caught on video at a gas station miles away, all of those things. And then the fact that a security guard at um, Washington State University found the car in there. You know, you register your car when you're a student with the campus security. He found the car. That is great investigative work. And what you what we talk about is the media can be our best friend or our worst enemy. And in this, them putting that out there helped the case tremendously. 100%. Phil, I wanted you to do this. I hope you can. <laughs> Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 
15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff and Crime Time with Duty Run. So we really love Joe, and he's a terrific criminal defense attorney. Look him up if you should need him. Very he's well. The best. He's the best. He's he's a, Bill. He is a, Bill, how did I come I, across that? But was I okay? Did, did, did the signals okay? Yeah. Bill, I want to I say something before you get a lot of shit. Um, the university, uh, Washington State University, they are um, police officers. They carry guns. These guys can make arrests. They're not security guards. Uh, I saw a couple of people in the chat going nuts about that. But the bottom line is, is that he had the wherewithal to start running plates when the bolo went out. And Thanks to those two midnight, overnight, uh, Washington State University campus police. They ran the plates yeah. of all the registered vehicles there, and they came up with Kohlberger's 2015 Hyundai, and they kept that close to the vest throughout this whole thing. Uh, some people sent messages, and Bill and Phil, you guys can relate to this. Why, why were we being bamboozled about a 2011 to 2013 when two weeks later they knew about the 2015? Well, that's called keeping it close to the vest and not spooking your possible perpetrator. So a lot of surveillance, a lot of things that we don't know about that we'll come to hear about in the future. So buckle in, folks, buckle in, because we're going to be getting a lot of information as this trial commences. Absolutely. And you know something? I don't mean to disparage the Washington state. If they are police officers or peace officers, they have status to make arrests and all of that stuff. But they look we said from day one, they did a fantastic job. They right. did an amazing job. And the day that the Moscow police put out that they were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra, I said that same day, this is not a witness. This is the purpose car. I said that day one. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's uh, it's intuition. It's police intuition. But it, it it's important. And again, even ge uh, genetic genealogists said this case probably would have been solved with traditional investigative uh, resources. Melanie. Yeah, I got to agree with you. Everybody did a great job on this case. And, and you know, that's another thing. Like, you can't be releasing all of these this information. You want the suspect to feel comfortable. If he, if he knows you're onto him, he's going to disappear. So, I mean, it, it's, a lot of it's intentional that they don't release certain information and, and it, it worked in this case. Absolutely. You know, it somewhat makes me laugh or, or humorous when the media almost like demands, demands we get this information. Why are we not getting this? Cause you cannot be trusted. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, yeah, exactly. Cause you want to put it out. Look, even, and again, in no way do I want to disparage uh, Steve Gonzalez the father of Kaylee Gonzalez, one of the students who was murdered. However, he wanted to know all of the investigative information. But when he was given that information, his next stop was some media location to talk about what he had just learned. So that's why they can't tell everyone all the inside investigative information. Ron. Right. You know, Bill, because we know from being in the business for a long time, this is an emotional thing. Uh, Steve's lost his daughter to a vicious murder. So I don't think he intentionally went on the air with all the media outlets to blab and hurt the case. He was just 
angry that there was a murderer out there. Remember, when they had that memorial at the um, inside the uh, somewhere in the campus, I think they had it in the auditorium in a um, basketball stadium or whatever, they were concerned that this perpetrator who committed this heinous crime was going to come and, and, and be in attendance in this, uh, in this arena. So um, I think uh, uh, that, uh, you know, Steve was uh, going and being vocal because he was being a protective father of his daughter, not thinking uh, this could ruin the case. He was just pissed. And, um, you know, I, at no point did any of us, including yourself, Bill, uh, did we talk down about this guy doing that? But we knew from our experience that it was not the proper thing to do. And we wish that we could have got to him and said, hey, listen, I know how much you want to do this, but you can't. You got to keep some of the stuff that they, you're getting. You got to hold it close, you know? So 100%. Yeah, 100%. J.D. Driscoll, thank you for the $5 super chat. Very much appreciated. Beck Fest, thank you for the four ninety nine. Hi, do you guys think Brian was interviewed when they knew it was his car? If not, why? Thank you all. Uh, no, I no, that absolutely not. They weren't going to give that up because they had to build probable cause against him. At that point, all they had was the car. They didn't know if that was the car. They right. knew they had a car. So till they had probable cause, which what gave them the probable cause, we believe was the touch DNA on the knife sheath that belonged to his father, which was part of what's known as familial DNA, but was probably um, obtained surreptitiously. That's my favorite word. <laughs> they probably I was just going to use that, <laughs> They probably <laughs> obtained his DNA surreptitiously through the garbage and compared it to the DNA they had from the knife sheath. And then, of course, when Brian Koberger was arrested, they took his reel, they took a buckle cheek swab and compared that, and it matched, you know, even better than his father's DNA did. But that, if that was the only DNA, we learned last night that touch DNA can be transferred and can last a very long time. So yeah. I wouldn't want to have a case depend on touch DNA, one single piece of touch DNA. Hey, Bill, I wanted to ask you a question, if, if, if I can. Do you mind if sure. I ask? And, and this go is ahead. going to go to you and, and, and Phil, and I'll comment on it, too. Um, you know, once the 2015 Hyundai Elantra was identified, uh, a lot of people have sent messages to me on Crime Time with Duty Ron asking, what did they do at that point? Now, I want to ask to, you know, you first, Bill. Um, do you feel that there was a possibility that there was some type of either electronic surveillance or um, eyes on Kohlberger 24-7 from that day forward when they said, holy shit, we have this car. It matches the bushy eyebrows. It matches some of our uh, witnesses' statements that we know were not privy to at that point, right? We didn't know that the surviving roommate saw the bushy eyebrows. When Once they identified that vehicle and they identified a possible perpetrator from the crime scene, do you think that they ta tailed him from... The beginning part of December, that's when this all started, till December 30th. Bill Cannon, I think I think 100% they had a tail on him. They had electronic uh, surveillance on him. If they didn't, they were remiss in their duties. They had to be all over him, you know, uh, you know, and maybe young FBI agents that looked like students, you know, uh, sur again, surreptitiously follow him 
And uh, I'm sorry, I used that word twice again. in a broadcast. I shouldn't be allowed to do that. Golly. But yeah, no doubt that they used every type of surveillance that they could. I don't know if they had enough time to tap his cell phone. That's difficult to get. I don't know if they didn't have probable cause at that point. So they probably could not have gotten a, uh, a warrant on his cell phone. But there's no doubt that they were following him and using every legal avenue to uh, surveil him. I agree. I, I just led you. You know, Billy, that, uh, I'm going to slow it down a little bit. I'm going to slow it down a little bit. I think that once they had the car, now they're going to use a canonism surreptitiously. They start looking into it. Look where he was at different times of the day. Was he near a crime scene? And then once you start to build, this guy looks good. Now we're putting this on him 24-7 and continuing the uh, investigative tools that we have. And we use another canonism. We do the perpology. We got to study his background very deeply, find out who right. he is. Guys, we're at one hour and 12 minutes. I'm going to start wrapping this up. I'm going to start with Melanie. Melanie, final thoughts. If either one of you can spell surreptitiously, I will put $50 <laughs> in the chat. Um, Mel Melanie, we, we were cops. We can't spell. <laughs> Uh, I, I was going to ask a question about the two traffic stops. That That's what I have a cell phone for. You know, <laughs> right, right. The Google, yep. the Google oh, yeah, the spell one. check too. That's a good one. The right two there. traffic stops that happened on the way from Washington to Pennsylvania. Was that surveillance? Was that intentional? You know, did they want to get the body cam to get a look at this guy to see if they could find any defensive wounds? Those are questions that I have. I have no doubt the FBI hooked. You know, they hit up the state police and said, pull this car over at such and such a location. They say they didn't. Yeah. I think they're fibbing. <laughs> Great work. You know, yeah. all they have to do is call whoever that police department on the phone, who's on such and such a road, this car we're looking for, pull them over, take a look at them, take a look at what's in the car, mm -hmm. see if you spot any blood. See if you, I mean, as the, as the one state trooper walked by the window on the passenger side, you could, it looked like the car was empty. Like there was nothing inside the car that I could see. He moved by real quick. But if you were moving from a, from from um, Idaho to Pennsylvania and you didn't intend to go back, wouldn't your car be packed with stuff? Yeah, you would think, you would think, yeah. Good point. Yeah, so duty run, final thoughts. Well, you know, Bill, I want to just say thank you for having me on uh, for this important uh, live stream. Uh, and, and it was an honor to be here with Melanie and uh, Detective Phil. Uh, and I want to say thank you to the chatters, the live chatters, and everybody who watches the replay and everyone who stays engaged um, respectfully in this conversation, because it is an important one to have. Uh, and I think here on Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, you're going to get it straight from the guys who walk the walk and talk the talk. That's Detective Phil and, and, and Sergeant Bill. Uh, so you're in a good place. Stick around here. Buckle the seatbelts in because there is so much more to this case that we have yet to hear about. And once this, and I hate to repeat myself, but once this trial commences, the answers to the questions of the car stops by the two uh, highway patrol officers in Indiana, the, the surveillance and everything that led to Brian Kohlberger's arrest in Albrightsville, uh, Monroe County, Pennsylvania, on the 30th will come to light and you guys will get it. But in, in the meantime, you're going to hear a lot of different false rumors and uh, people's ideas and thoughts. 
uh, again, it, it's all, you know, it's all about what you want to tolerate. But I say this, you know, once this thing commences, you're going to be, there's going to be a lot of wow moments. And I'll, I'll use the siren for that. There you go. <laughs> well, it's just like the uh, Alec Murdoch case. There was a lot of wow moments to that. There really was. And for anyone who wants to really learn how to spell surreptitiously, don't look at Angelia, Angela like Ang. She spelled it surreptitiously. I love it. <laughs> you would think you, your mother used to say, sound it out. Sound out the word. She did. And look what she came up with. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Phil, Phil, final I, words. I, I, might I don't have know to if it's the actual you. spelling. Go ahead, John. Go ahead, Ron. I might have to lasso Melanie for one of my shows because she's a great <laughs> guest. I'll she's fantastic and uh, you know something i don't own melanie she's a free agent and you're, you're <laughs> yes. welcome you're welcome to i mean i love her and uh, melanie we met in my in an acting class in new york city and she's a fantastic actor also and uh and a mom of five she reminded me <laughs> i've God seen her stand up <laughs> i'm dying to see that myself <laughs> isn't that what this is stand up phil final words Final words, tonight's show was about the repercussions of what went on post these homicides. Words matter, guys. If you post something on the internet or if you go on to a uh, YouTube channel or if you say something in public, uh, it could have, uh, you know, results and effects that will hurt, harm, or harass others. So think about what you do and to all the content creators, slow down. Things are coming on, on this case. It'll all come in good time and, you know, try to have some ethics, try to have some boundaries uh, and try to have some ethics. Well, absolutely. Said. Folks, Melanie uh, Little, thank you so much for coming on. This is Melanie's second time doing a podcast and she's uh, she's eclipsed the bar. We have to raise the bar because she she knocks the bar up way high. Mm -hmm. She's prettier than all of us. Of course, that's said without saying and uh <laughs> I want to thank, of course, Duty Ron. Thank you so much for coming in. You're such a smooth talker. You could be a, a real radio DJ, you know? This is what we do, Cannon. This is what we That's do. That's right. I guess, I guess we're podcasters, right? <laughs> and Phil, thank you so much. And on behalf of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, all you guys that tuned in tonight, thank you so much and be safe and God bless. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Melanie. And stay safe. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night. One episode, just sitting in the